This is the Beautiful Writers Podcast. I'm Danielle Laporte, and I'm here with Linda Sievertson, where we are chatting with some of the most amazing authors, publishing leaders, and creatives. Between the two of us, Linda and I have written something like 12 books, including our co-creation, Your Big Beautiful Book Plan. And we're here because we love this game. We love everything about the publishing industry, about getting ideas out into the world and being as creative as you possibly can. This all started with us interviewing some of our favorite agents and fellow authors for a membership group that we have called the Beautiful Writers Group. And because we don't believe friends should let their friends write alone, we are sharing the interviews with you. So for the next 45 minutes, because 45 minutes is a new hour, we will be digging deep and going for the light. Welcome. Hello, everyone. This is Linda Sievertson, and today Danielle Laporte and I are speaking with Elizabeth Gilbert, the gal I call our generation's Mark Twain. You know her, of course, from her worldwide bestseller, Eat, Pray, Love, which was her fourth book. And now, three bestsellers later, she's just released Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear. Welcome, my friend. Thank you for being here, Liz Love. Hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for calling me Mark Twain. I like that. <laughs> Another Connecticut resident, right? Another nutmaker. Mm-hmm. With a happier life. I'm going to say that you are blessed with a happier life. Let's say that. Oh, well, yeah, I live in an age where my family members can have access to medicine, so right? I don't have as, quite as many deaths in the family as that poor man <laughs> right? had. Poor man. So, Danielle, you want to uh, add? Mm-hmm. Liz, we always start with a blessing. So it goes like this. And we ask everybody just to pivot and take a deep breath, ourselves included. So we're here now to give witness to a shared truth that absolutely everything is progress, that we have all that we need, and that brilliance is unfolding in here and now. And so it is. Let's rock. So Liz, we have your friend Martha Beck as a guest coming up. And her first memoir, as you know, Expecting Adam, had magic in the subtitle. And uh, you know I've been working on a memoir for a few years with magic in the subtitle. And Danielle has written all about magic, so I'm sensing a theme here. (laughs) What's the theme? (laughs) Gee, I don't know. And my question to you is, do you think the very word itself may have inherent magical properties? Well, if you want to get like deep down into, you know, the roots of mysticism, all of the words have deeply magical Mm. properties, right? Mm. Language is incredibly powerful. Mm. But I definitely think it's a joyful word that makes people feel happy and feel sense of possibility. You know, Max Weber, the German philosopher, talked about the disenchantment of the modern world, by which he referred to sort of the post-enlightenment Western world that we live in, some of which I'm very grateful for. There's a level at which the world needed a little disenchanting. Um, You know, like when you erase certain kinds of enchantment, you also erase certain kinds of really dumb superstition, racism, sexism, the rule of kings. You know, there's all this stuff that's tied up in a very superstitious way of seeing the world that enlightenment and rational thought and empiricism helped break down. And we are all beneficiaries Mm -hmm. of that. So I'm not totally negating the rational empirical world. I'm grateful for all the advancements that came with it. But You don't want to totally make the world an unenchanted place. And I think that the fact that we're all talking about this word magic means that we're all tuned into this idea that certainly in the realms of creativity and love and spirituality, 
you had best keep some room in yourself for magical thinking or else you're not going to have much of a motive to do the work because there isn't a rational reason to do all those things. There has to be a magical reason to do it. Mm. Okay, so beautiful. Liz, have you ever experienced a miracle? Yeah. <laughs> mm. I have never not. <laughs> <laughs> miracle being like you can define it and it have to be a biblical miracle. Oh, look, you know, I think the whole thing's a freaking miracle. Um, (laughs) Listen, our presence here and our invitation to be alive and to have awareness of our awareness is a miracle. (laughs) I think every time anybody's ever forgiven me for garbage that I pulled on them that they managed to let go, it's a miracle. I think any time I've ever forgiven myself or anybody else, it's a miracle. I think the fact that I get to spend my entire life engaged with ideas is a miracle. That I was born into a society where as a woman, I have a certain amount of autonomy and independence and agency over my life in a way that none of my female ancestors ever had and that very few women in this day and in the world have is a miracle. You know, the miracles, like if we were to sit here and list the miracles of my life, they don't ever end. (laughs) There's no bottom to them. Mm. All right. Prayer. Do you pray before you write? And if so, can you share with us what that looks like? You know, I don't. And I wish I did. I wish I prayed more. I don't have a prayer practice, to be very honest with you. I have a very sketchy meditation practice, (laughs) but it's nothing I would like teach or advise somebody to imitate because I think there are a lot of other people who engage at that level a lot better than I do. Not that it's a competition, but you know, there are people who have real, really deep, really rich meditation and prayer practices. And sometimes I look at them with envy and then I think, well, why don't you do it? (laughs) And the thing is I forget, you know, I forget. And it's very hard for me to pray. This is terrible. Never said this before, but we're speaking the truth here. It doesn't serve anybody not to. It's very hard for me to pray when I'm not desperate. Prayer to me is still tied up in some sort of idea of desperate pleading that I go to when I've reached the end of myself and I can't handle things and I don't know what to do next and I feel lost. That's when I'll turn to prayer. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it should really be that way. That might be something I need to look at and explore. I don't pray before I write. It's weird. I don't even do a joyful prayer, but I was going to say it's usually too caught up in joy and excitement for me to pause and do that. I clean my house. (laughs) I clean the hell out of my house because I love to sit down in a clean space and write. And I also know that once I get going, it's not going to get clean for like another year. (laughs) Is that a kind of prayer? (laughs) The garage cleaning is mine. I had a medicine man for years that I lived next door to in New Mexico. And he used to say to me, because I used to come to him and say, I feel like I should be meditating. Everybody's meditating. And he said, but you write and writing is a meditation. Mm-hmm. Do you know, I had a wonderful conversation with my friend, Rob Bell, yeah. Pastor Rob Bell, wrote Love Wins and such a great guy. We were doing like an onstage conversation together and somebody said to him, I keep looking for a church that I can belong to, that I can be part of, that will make me feel the way that I want to feel. And I can't find it because every time I go to a new church, I find a new set of dogma and doctrine that I have a lot of trouble with. And mm-hmm. I feel like I should go to church, but I just can't find the church. And Rob Bell, who's a minister, said, maybe the church that you're looking for isn't a church. Maybe the thing that you're trying to feel, like transcendence and wonder and excitement, isn't going to be found for you in a church. Maybe it's going to be found for you in exercise or in creativity or in service or in 
joyful expression in some other way or in creating a study group with somebody or building something. And I love that idea that maybe your church isn't a church. So maybe your prayer isn't literally prayer. I mean, I feel like the, well, I do not pray before I begin writing. When I am writing, I am my most authentic, most actualized, most in tune and most devout self. So it could be that my prayer is that. Mm, Beautiful. The Dalai Lama said, like he actually he said it to me directly, which is <laughs> like I don't even want to. Yeah, I'd rather say yeah, I read it, but I was actually hanging with him, and what? Um, <laughs> no religion. Religion is absolutely unnecessary. Just have some compassion in your heart. And you know, we left that meeting. We were like, did the fourteenth incarnation of the Buddha just say <laughs> <laughs> religion is not necessary? Yeah, uh, looks like yeah. it. Yeah. Wow, Liz, what's your favorite yeah. mistake? Career or otherwise, like you love it. You're so glad you, you fucked up in this way. Oh, God. You know how mothers always say, I'm not a mom, so I don't know this, but you know how the kid who gave the most trouble is the one that they secretly sometimes admit to loving the most in a weird way? Like, because there's some crazy bond between them, the one who almost killed them, like yeah. the one, the kid who, like, they didn't sleep for three years because they didn't know, you know, it's so funny. I would have to say that my favorite mistake are my romantic mistakes. You know, just all that time that I spent with so very many boys and men just wasting, you know, as I see it now, (laughs) just wasting my time and my energy and my love and my body on so many guys. And I, you know, part of me looks back on that and just thinks, oh, honey, I wish so much I could go back and pull you right out of every one of those cars, every one of those dorm rooms, every one of those situations, just pull you out of that. That wasn't where you needed to be. And the other part of me knows that that is absolutely where I needed to be. Mm-hmm. And all I can do is look back on her and just keep sending her back to those cars and those dorm rooms and those parties <laughs> and just say, actually, sweetie, you apparently you do have to do all of that because without going through everything you learned from all of those things, you never will get to be the woman that you're destined to be. And so that has to be my favorite mistake because it's my biggest one. Oh, what a Love great it. answer. I can just hear a collective like sigh of relief. <laughs> so many women who have so much regret. Mm. <sighs> I actually hear a lot of moaning and groaning. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So shifting gears. When was your first sort of, I did it, I pulled it off moment? Oh, gosh. When I was 10, <laughs> I wrote a play called Mona's Proof oh, that was a one-act play. <laughs> I was 10. It was about as much as juice as I had. And it starred all my friends. I also directed it and produced it. And it was a musical. Of course. Um, and I wrote a song for it that goes to the tune of 15 Miles on the Erie Canal. Because it was the only song I knew. But I changed the words. And it's about a girl who goes back in time and nobody believes her. And we produced that fucker. We put that, we put that play up. We put it on what? stage in the afternoon in the gym. What? We worked months. We had costumes and posters that we put all over the school. And my parents both took off the day from work and came and saw it. And it was, you know, it was really good. I stand by that play. Mm. It was (laughs) the first sense I ever had of like, I made a thing. Yeah. Look, I made a thing. There didn't used to be this play called Mona's Proof. (laughs) And everyone had to bear witness to it because we dragged them all there and made them watch it. And it was about 10 minutes long and it had a song, but it was great. It was a heist. Oh, that's awesome. (laughs) 
We pulled it off. That's awesome. <laughs> Everybody wants to know about your creative rhythm. And I'm sure you've been asked this, but is it first thing in the morning? Is it, you know, once you've had your cleaning meditation, <laughs> what's a creative day look like for you? Well, it depends on the season. So my creative rhythm goes by seasons. There are seasons for writing. It's almost an agricultural clock more than it is a clock. Because I think part of the reason that I used to have a lot of trouble when I was a lot younger writing was because I didn't recognize the seasonal aspect of it and the fact that you must have whole seasons of preparation before you can begin working. Mm. So I would just sit down one afternoon and be like, I want to be a writer. Open up a notebook and be like, hmm. <laughs> got empty page, got nothing, right? I would never do that to myself now. Like I'm working on a novel now about New York City showgirls in the 1940s. I've been researching it for a year. I'm going to research it probably for another year or two before I begin writing it, collecting like everything I can possibly collect language, reading books from the 1940s, interviewing former showgirls, reading mm. memoirs, watching mm. old movies from the 1940s to figure out how people spoke and dressed, like just working on laying the foundation for this thing. I'm not writing anything mm. except notes on index cards. I can go for two years without writing anything because I'm in the season of preparation for writing. And then when it comes time to write, there's another level of preparation, which is clear off the calendar, make space mm -hmm. and set aside time, say no to everything and just have big chunks of months where you don't have anything planned. And that takes months to lay out too. So mm -hmm. it's all this foundation building. Mm -hmm. I would never just sit down on a random afternoon and begin something without years of work building up for it. And then when the house is clean and the <laughs> note cards are all in their boxes, you know, and I've got all my research done and I've got my time set down, then it's farmer's hours. Then it's, you know, you make the decision to write the night before. So you make the decision to not drink a bottle of wine, to not stay up watching Breaking Bad till two o'clock in the morning. You know, like you decide the night before what you're going to write the next morning and all the next mornings to come. And so that's a kind of a ritualistic thing too. So that when I wake up at 5.30, that first day to begin, I'm in the best possible place. And I have so much of my work already done, you know, um, wow. and ready to go so that I'm not alone with an empty notebook and nothing to say and knowing nothing about what I'm talking about. <sighs> and then it goes really fast. So it's weird. Like people will say to me, I can't believe you wrote the signature of all things in a couple months. I was like, I wrote that book in four years. Yeah. It's just I actually did the writing mm -hmm. for it mm -hmm. in a couple of months. But that's because I did years of work to get ready for it. So that when it came time to do it, it's basically just like fill in the blanks, count by numbers kind of stuff. Let's talk a minute about saying no. Because at this point, I say no thank you to about 80% of what comes my way. So that the yeses are like the full on hell yes, magic yeses. And I've learned that no is a muscle. And it's, I see it's particularly hard for creative women to build that muscle. So how did you build your no muscle? Oh, I did it the way everyone does, by saying yes to everything until right. I had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> right. I so wish I could have learned that a different way. Um, but I had to learn it by getting myself sick. Yeah and strung out and broken, and then realizing that I was of no service to anybody, including myself, you know, so it was hard earned. And it's hard for me, I'm a pleaser. Mm. And I'm just go through life wanting everyone to be made so satisfied by my presence in their life. So it's not an easy thing for me. And one thing I think is that I spent years never saying no to anybody, because I had this terrible fear that if I said no to people, they would be terribly disappointed and they wouldn't like me as much. Mm -hmm. And then I actually started saying no to people. And you know what I found out? 
when you say no to people, they are terribly disappointed and they don't like you as much. My worst fear <laughs> was absolutely fucking true. Oh, yeah. Like, there's a reason I didn't do it for 30 years because people hate it. People like, I think we have to be very honest about the fact that people don't like being said no to. Yeah. And there may be some level at which they respect you a little bit more, but they mostly just are mad in the way that I am when people say no to me. I don't like it when people say no to me. You know, none of us like it. And so that's why I wish we could just be more honest about why it is so hard. It's so hard because there actually are consequences. People actually don't like you as much. They don't think you're as sweet and fun as when you were totally available to their every need. You know, they're like, wow, she's kind of changed. You know, she's kind of a bitch. (laughs) Like, oh, she thinks she's better than us, whatever the thing is. And The trick is that you have to let that be. You have to sit with the discomfort that comes with the no. And you have to sit and allow somebody to be disappointed without trying to rescue them from their disappointment. Mm -hmm. You have to just be like, I see your disappointment and I'm going to let you have your disappointment and my no stands because I'm aware of the limits of my human energies and the limits of my capacity and the limits of my mortal life. And I can't do everything. So I'm sorry. And it's not easy. And it is a muscle that, and it better be because <laughs> yeah. it's hard. Like you have to get in shape for it because it's <laughs> really hard. I still don't find it easy, but I absolutely find it necessary. Wow. Ditto and ditto. Yeah. <sighs> beautiful. All right. Best advice you've ever been given in terms of creativity or the business of creativity? The best advice came to me from a older woman who was a painter and she spoke to me when I was in my 20s. And she said, what are you willing to give up in order to have what you keep saying you want? What are you willing to give up? I love that because it speaks to the reality of triage, (laughs) going back to the no's that we're talking about, right? Like she, as a woman in her 70s who had made beautiful art her whole life, was under no illusions that you can have everything or make everybody happy. And so she's like, I see your life. I see it's really stressed. I see you don't have any time to work. I see that you have talent. I see that you have dreams. And what are you going to give up now? in order to become the person that you keep saying you want to become, something's going to have to go. Something's going to have to go. There's going to be, have to be a bunch of things that you walk away from in order to be this thing that you keep saying you want to be. That was amazing advice. And I'll often say that when I get very low energy with myself too, I'll say, what are you willing to give up in order to have the thing you keep saying you want? Because the thing I keep saying I want is vitality and creativity and excitement and joy. So a bunch of other stuff is going to have to go for that to happen. Mm -hmm. And that was fabulous. The best professional advice I ever got. (laughs) (laughs) I've sold a bunch of stuff to Hollywood for movies, one of which became Eat, Pray, Love, one became Coyote Ugly, Mm. a bunch of magazine things that I wrote for GQ and Spin Magazine back in the day sold, although they didn't get made. I have a now PBS, BBC's allegedly right. made a version Same of answer. the Sherpa things. The best advice I ever got was from somebody in Hollywood who just took me aside and just said, let me just give you the true believe in on this, okay? <laughs> Hollywood is a horrible place filled with horrible human beings. <laughs> there's, don't work with them. There's only one reason to have any interaction with them whatsoever, and that is because they have money that they can give you. So if you're lucky enough to be in a situation where you can work with them, just take the money and walk away and don't get involved in the project. <laughs> oh my God. As somebody who's been a producer on two different movies that both didn't get made, thank God, because I didn't want to enter into the cesspool. The best advice I ever heard about Hollywood was, if you have to deal with them, 
just realize you're back in high school, only the high school is really small and everybody in it is the most popular and the best looking from around the world. And they all move to the same high school and you're all competing. Oh God. I was like, okay, uh, never mind. Well, the weird thing is once I was told that, like, oh, then I could enjoy it. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. Then I could enjoy it. And then I was like, oh, there actually are some good people out here. But anyway, I just love the line, Hollywood is a horrible place filled with horrible human beings. Don't work with them. Just cash the check and go back home. Um, And actually, I do think that the proper place for a writer who has sold her book or property to movies or TV is not to be around. It's none of your business after that point. Really, just let it go. Let them do their thing. It's not yours anymore. (laughs) Go home and write another one. (laughs) Let's take our intermission. I think yeah. this is a good point. Yeah. This is our multiple choice intermission. Dun, blah, rapid fire. Okay, Liz, Leonard Cohen or Rumi? Jesus, why Zina? would you take one of them away from me? <laughs> oh, you're evil. This is Sophie's choice. Um, oh, God, this is killing me, but I got to go with Rumi. Uh, but oh, man, uh, that hurt. Uh, that really so. hurt. I know. You got to cut sometimes. You got to <laughs> uh, Silver or gold? Gold. Sleep. Or sex. <laughs> I guess I have to go with sleep because it came out of my mouth before. I, I was like, whatever the thing is that comes after that is no. Well, I think you're allowed to say I'm on a book tour, so I'm choosing sleep. sleep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, if good. I don't get enough sleep, I'm not going to want to have sex with you exactly. anyway. So it should be sleep first. Exactly. Good to know. Dark or milk chocolate? Dark. L.A. or New York? New York, but LA's been growing on me, man. Right? I like it. I like it out there. Danny Shapiro like said the same thing. I think we're just people. luring you guys in. I know. New York is the great mother yeah. for me, and she's always welcomed me and, and taken care of me in a really beautiful way. But LA just seems like my fun little sister that I want to go hang out with. <laughs> like, totally, totally. Okay, last one. Novel or memoir? Oh, guys. Yeah. <laughs> That's not fair. I that one's miss. not fair. Okay. I'm going for the bone. I'm just going to go for the next thing, novel. Novel. Um, mm. But I refuse to commit lifelong on that. <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to commit. All right. Your favorite thing about writing for magazines? That it took the preciousness out of my writing. Oh. And I learned how to cut and chop and paste and edit and destroy and work on deadline. And I realized that the work could be manhandled and manipulated and a lot of people could be involved in it and that it was not a sacred chalice full of unicorn blood. It was just a magazine article and it's all fine. It has made me a much better, much stronger, much happier writer. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, Marriage and creativity. So you're on a deadline. You're now in your creative bubble. The house is clean. You've done your research. Balance. Like how do you keep the relationship fed while you're feeding the new baby that's called a book? I bring him into the bubble. Because he, thank God, and this is why I love, well, there's a lot of reasons why I love him, but one of the reasons that I love my husband is because he's so interested in my work and he's so excited by the fact that I do this kind of stuff and he wants to know what I'm doing. And so like with The Signature of All Things, I wrote that book every day and read it to him every night. So he would come in, like he would knock at like five o'clock and glasses of wine and he would sit down and I would read him what I wrote that day. And it was like a Victorian serial novel because- (laughs) The next day, that's part of the reason I wrote the thing so fast is because oh. every night when I finished, he would say, well, what happens next? What? And so it was like, I was like Scheherazade, except without the death sentence. So every <laughs> the next day, I'd be like, how can I delight this man tonight But with this story? It was wonderful. So it became oh. part of our marriage, right? Oh, and, that's sexy. And that's, I think, only because he has such respect 
for my space when I can't have him there, when I have to go away for a couple of weeks for research or so that because he's so respectful of that space, then when I'm ready to bring him in, it's really joyful. Okay. Now I got to interrupt because this is bringing something funny up. So when you wrote committed, you know, you wrote some things about him that weren't flattering as you did about yourself, right? The list of what was right. wrong with both of you. Right. right. And you know, I'm finishing up mine now and my fiance, he's in it and he's embarrassed. I mean, because he's a really shy guy. He's a very private guy. And I keep saying, sorry, babe, sorry, babe, you're the happy ending. He's like, Oh God. So I read it to him, but he literally puts his hands over his eyes and like peeks out and, oh. I, and I can kind of tell that he loves it because he's smiling underneath his hand, right. but I, but he's oh, slightly terrified. Cute. So how did he handle it both like in the sex stuff and eat, pray, love. And then in the, was it a progression of becoming more easeful with your work? Well, you know, with eat, pray, love, it was funny. Cause when I met him, there was this moment where I had to say, look, I'm traveling and writing a book. I had a book deal for that book before <laughs> right. that book existed, right? I was traveling on my book advance. And I said, I'm writing about everything that's happening to me this year and you appear to be happening to me. <laughs> so how do you feel about that? And he said, well, what are the stakes? And I said, there are no stakes. Nobody reads my books. <laughs> <laughs> of course, 12 million people read that book. There was two things. One is I changed his name right. and that was just enough of a little bit of a shadow of protection that I think he felt. And he's yeah. so grateful that I did that. And I've kept that name change every time yeah. I talk about him in public. He has his like nom de plume. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, he was very celebratory about that book. We didn't know anybody was going to read it. It didn't seem like a very big deal. With Committed, it was different because obviously people were going to read it. And so we together really chose what went in there. Yeah. And there's nothing in there that he and I didn't agree of to. Course. And there are things in there that I had written in the first draft that he was not comfortable with. You know, things about his first wife or about, you know, just stuff that he just felt like, uh, you know, or like his kids, yeah. stuff that just felt like, uh, I don't know about that. And it, out it goes, you know, I'm certainly not going to pimp out the love of my life to make a chapter a little better. You yeah. know, <laughs> that's not a problem for me. <laughs> that's not a dilemma. It's like, if, if you're not comfortable with it, it's sure. not going in there, sure. period. Absolutely. I actually love it. I read him something last week and I thought he was going to be really embarrassed. And he goes, but you forgot this. And he added a really mm-hmm. funny thing. So I said, dude, you're a good editor. You're going to read the whole thing. Cute. Yeah. Cute. All right, Danielle. I think this is the final yard and this is about the song that still must be sung. So we know like you just like perpetual research, Broadway leg lifts and that. <laughs> so we've got that, but like, it's something you must do before you take your last breath. I have to learn to speak fluent Italian. Whoa. I'm not going to my grave, not Whoa. speaking fluent Italian. I was almost, you know, no one will ever mistake me for an Italian for so many reasons, but when I was there for Eat, Pray, Love for four months, and I'd studied the year before I went there too, I had it where I could converse and I could sit at a dinner table with people and sort of follow what was going on. And I couldn't have this conversation that I'm having with you guys, but I could have conversation. And it was one of the great glories of my life. And then I lost it. That was 10 years ago. And I've been back to Italy a bunch of times. But for me, I'm, I know I'm eventually going to have to go there and just do this thing because it's so frustrating for me not to have it. I'm like, why don't I have this language in my mouth? I love this language so mm. much. And it, for no reason, it serves me no rational purpose. It's just the language of joy and beauty for me. And I want to have it completely before I go. I don't know when I'm going to do that, but I'll do it. Mm. <laughs> it might be in my 70s or 80s. <laughs> I wish I could say something really affirmative and supportive right now in Italian, but I just say, yeah. 
Everybody, thank you for listening. Rumor has it that there's a special little place you can go on iTunes to leave a review of the show. And we would love it if you went and clicked on some stars or said something lovely and supportive. And all thanks, all love, go be creative. Remember to pick up a copy of Big Magic, Creative Living Beyond Fear by Elizabeth Gilbert. It is one of the best books I have ever read. I literally could not put it down. To hear more of our chats and find out how we can support you on your writing journey, head over to beautifulwriterspodcast.com, where you can subscribe via iTunes or SoundCloud and never miss an episode. Danielle and I are so grateful you've spent your time with us. Until next time, write on. Write on.